Welcome to Tisky Sour, where it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day, because once again, we are leading the show with stories about alleged sex pests in Westminster, and specifically alleged sex pests in the Conservative Party. We are also going to be talking about more workers voting to go on strike and the elite tears they have provoked. And a clip from Douglas Murray, which shows just quite how far he's gone towards a sort of version of crypto-fascism. I'm joined all evening by Aaron Bastani. It feels like it's been a while. How are you doing? Very well, Michael. Great to be joining you. Great to be talking about some hugely important stories. Can I just say, Michael, well done. In the last seven days, Navarra Media got twice as many views on YouTube as Piers Morgan. That's because of your great work, first and foremost. And, and Mr. Fox, I should add. So, well done. Well, the elephant in the room is that I was at Glastonbury while we scored all of those um, remarkable viewing figures. But I'm, I'm putting that more down to Mick Lynch than uh, my absence. I can't wait for him to be doing some more media rounds because you love to see it. We love to see it. Another day and another allegation of sexual misconduct against a Tory MP. Chris Pincher last night resigned as the Conservatives' Deputy Chief Whip. In his resignation letter, he wrote this. Dear Prime Minister, last night I drank far too much. I've embarrassed myself and other people, which is the last thing I want to do, and I apologise to those concerned. I think the right thing to do in the circumstances is for me to resign as Deputy Chief Whip. I owe it to you and the people I've caused upset to to do this. Now, embarrassment is perhaps an understatement, as this was not a case of someone getting drunk and dancing on tables, or a case of saying something overly blunt when a little bit pissed. But rather, it is an alleged instance of unwanted groping. The Guardian report, Pincher has not issued any comment on the allegations of groping two men. An MP present at the Carlton Club on Wednesday night said Pincher was asked to leave by several people and was so drunk, quote, he could barely stand up. The victims were said to be two staffers and multiple MPs who witnessed the alleged groping message Chief Whip Chris Heaton-Harris to demand a meeting after the incident. One of those who reported Pincher was fellow Whip Sarah Dines, two sources said. Remarkably, this is not the first time Pincher has resigned after allegations of sexual harassment. In 2017, he resigned as a whip after an allegation was made about an unwanted pass he made at a former Olympic rower in 2001. Though unwanted pass, as you saw in that Telegraph headline, didn't quite capture the full nature of the allegation. This is how the complainant Alex Story recounted what happened. This is a piece he wrote in 2017. After the phone canvassing, a few of us went on to the nearby pub, the Marquis of Granby, for a drink and Chris came with us. After we had a couple of pints of beer, he asked me in a Jeeves and Worcester voice, what about Dindins, Alex? It sounded odd, but I was hungry, so I agreed. We then stepped into a cab and went south across the river, the opposite direction to where most of the restaurants were. When I asked why, he said, I just need to go back home quickly. Arriving at his flat, he poured me a whiskey, as I recall. I suddenly felt a bit woozy and was sitting on the left side of the couch, leaning on the armrest as he became unusually tactile. He then started untucking the back of my shirt, massaging my neck and whispered, quote, you'll go far in the Conservative Party. I assumed he was suggesting that if I did what he wanted, he would help me get on the candidates list too. I jumped up a little bemused and said sardonically, we've only just met, let's stay friends. He then rushed into another room saying, quote, let me just slip into something more comfortable. And he returned in a bathrobe like a pound shop Harvey Weinstein with his chest and belly sticking out. At the time, Pincher said he did not recognize these events and a Conservative Party panel would go on to judge he had not broken any code of conduct. However, questions abound as to why Boris Johnson went on to promote Pincher to Deputy Chief Whip in February this year. This is from The Times. The Times has been told that ministers and allies on the backbenches had urged the Prime Minister to reflect on historical allegations against Pincher before putting him in charge of enforcing party discipline in February. According to Politico, the Conservative Party appointed a, quote, minder to prevent Pincher from getting too drunk and behaving inappropriately at events. Some suggested that Johnson felt he owed a debt to Pincher for saving his premiership at the start of this year by organising a rearguard action in the face of a Tory plot to remove him from office. The day was also filled with demands that Pincher lose the whip. It was a course of action that was originally resisted by the Prime Minister. This is from Politico's playbook. 
A Tory party source told the Mail's Jason Grove, among others, quote, the PM thinks he's done the decent thing by resigning. There is no need for an investigation and no need to suspend the whip. Playbook is told the PM texted Pincher last night to accept his resignation and thank him for taking responsibility for his wrongdoing. So according to Boris Johnson, Chris Pincher, he'd done exactly the right thing by resigning. This was someone taking responsibility for wrongdoing, what we like to see. Of course, that line didn't wash with Labour. This was Fangham Debonair, shadow leader of the Commons. An allegation, of course, uh, if there's an allegation of sexual misconduct, of course the whip should be removed. And that is pending an investigation, which I think, you know, could come from the independent complaints and grievance system. It could be that the alleged victims decide to pursue a police complaint. But in any case, in either case, the Tory party needs to take responsibility for the behaviour of their own MPs. We do already have a parliamentary code of conduct. We are supposed to abide by those standards. But more importantly, we're supposed to believe in them and believe in upholding them to the very highest standards. It really matters that the Tory party takes action, and I would urge them to do so today, suspend the whip, carry out an investigation, find out what's happened, and do justice by those who may have suffered, uh, as, again, as I said, it's alleged at this, same, at this time, who may have suffered a really grievous um, situation. That concern was reflected on the Tory benches by, among others, Karen Bradley and Caroline Noakes, and some ex-MPs have also had their say. This is Neil Parrish, who lost the Tory whip in April after admitting to watching porn on his phone in the Commons chamber. Neil Parrish, first of all, can I ask your thoughts? Should the Tory party remove the whip? Definitely from Christopher Pincher. The first thing they did to me, and I, I made a huge mistake, is they withdrew the whip. They cannot be double standards. Um, my belief is that, you know, Christopher Pincher has things to be answered for. The whip must be withdrawn. He's got the opportunity then to go board the Parliamentary Standards Board uh, to see what his conduct actually was. Those that were, hit, were affected can also give evidence. Why do you think they haven't done it so far? I can't believe why they haven't done it, because that was the first thing they did to me, even though I asked for it to be sorted out privately. Um, and I just feel that it's double standards. But, you know, I suspect by this evening or tomorrow, uh, the whip will be withdrawn. I can't believe they can treat us so in such different ways. It says a lot about the current Conservative Party when an MP is accused of sexual misconduct. There are four MPs available who you can go to for comment who were recently suspended for sexual misconduct and they can discuss whether there are any double standards here at play. Neil Parrish there seems to have been effective in his complaints about double standards because Boris Johnson has now U-turned on his earlier position. So it took him almost 24 hours, but Pincher has now lost the Tory whip. Aaron, what do you make of this story? Well, I mean, this chap is the, was he the deputy chief whip, Michael? Deputy chief Fincher? whip, yeah. Number, number two. You know, this, the number two, the, I mean, this is like a senior police officer locally doing an eight ball off a shoplifted Ikea mirror. You know, these are the people that are meant to maintain discipline within the parliamentary conservative party and they're, they're wrong uns. Uh, of course, any large organization will have, you know, people doing bad things, wrong things, sometimes criminal things, and you, and you want them to be dealt with. Mass membership parties, for instance, inevitable when you have hundreds of thousands of people, individuals who do bad things or councillors, there's just so many. What we're seeing clearly with the Conservative Party in Parliament is something far beyond that. We are seeing a statistically, you know, a, a statistically significant increase in the number of wrongons in the Conservative Party that is in no way a reflection of the broader public or, uh, be it said also, their, their voters. So, when you have a gentleman such as this, whose very job is to maintain discipline, and they are repeated, repeated offenders, alleged offenders, I should say, for this most recent incident, then you do have serious problems. And also, Michael, you know, the first time this happened and uh, he faced the consequences with this uh, hunky rower, he was also one of the whips. I think it really does speak volumes about the caliber of the, the Conservative Party and and their complete absence of ethics. Somebody like this could be a whip, not once, but twice, and have to go twice. I think it also says something quite significant about modern conservatism. You know, conservatism has had a number of aspects to it. We're not going to talk about those this evening, but two of those have historically included, you know, emotional repression and restraint. And I think those are two things that aren't really being associated right now with conservative MPs. What do they stand for? Inequality, hierarchy, and the worship of money. 
And that does feed through to, I think, a quite clear default of behavioral excess in every aspect of their lives. Very, very bad people and very many of them in Parliament. And I mean, you could not have a stronger sign of impunity than the fact that someone who, as I say, according to Politico, had a minder to stop them doing inappropriate things when drunk, who was put as second in command as the person sort of responsible for discipline in the Conservative Party. So both of the, the instances, so the instance we, we, we read to you, the allegations concerning the rower and the allegations concerning these alleged gropings, they are allegations. There hasn't been a process where he has been found to have, have done them. But it's very suggestive if he needed a minder and the same organization, the Conservative Party, that thought he need a mind, needed a minder also made him number two in charge of discipline. What kind of organization is this? What kind of people are these people? It beggars belief. Let's move on to our next story because we have so much to cover this evening. Workers at the UK's largest telecoms company, BT, have voted in favor of what would be their first nationwide strike in 35 years. They're represented by the Communication Workers Union and their General Secretary, Dave Ward, had this to say after the vote. I think it's a remarkable vote in favour of strike action uh, in a group of workers across BT who haven't been involved in this sort of ballot before. Um, so, you know, first of all, I think we would have to say that workers are, are all saying now enough's enough. Uh, I think that the reason for that is because obviously they've realised that the company have posted profits of £1.3 billion. They paid £700 million to shareholders and at the same time as the CEO imposed a pay increase of £1,500, his earnings have increased to by over 32% to over £3.5 million. So by any level of measure of fairness, um, you know, this is not on. Uh, and I think workers are genuinely just saying we're not going to be treated like that anymore. It's also significant, very significant, in the group of workers who are part of this uh, ballot uh, thousands of them who work in call centres. So, you know, what we're saying is this is a landmark vote uh, for that group of workers because it's the first time uh, in UK history that a group of call centre workers in multiple sites across the UK have voted uh, in favour of strike action. Two groups of BT workers have voted to strike. The call centre workers you heard Dave Ward speak about there and engineers at BT subsidiary Openreach who maintain the UK's internet infrastructure. Both groups voted well over 90% for strike action on turnouts of 58% and 74% respectively. The vote for industrial action in this instance is in response to a below inflation pay offer from BT they are offering a flat rate pay rise of £1,500, which BT says represents an average increase of 5%. Inflation is running at 9.1%. Aaron, this looks set to be a summer of a wave of strikes in so many different sectors, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's, that's reflecting a crisis we're seeing in regards to inflation. You know, somebody watching this might be thinking, wow, where's this come from? Trade unions are all of a sudden balloting members going on strike. We've seen it with, obviously, rail workers, not just the RMT, we should say. I think this week there was strike action amongst ASLEF, uh, the union for drivers uh, on the trams in South London, in Croydon, and elsewhere, I think in Hull and a, a few other places too. You may be seeing strike action later this month, next month with ASLEF, with the TSSA, which is kind of like the bureaucrats union for the rail. If that happens, if you get ASLEF and TSSA and RMT, there will be no skeleton service. They will not be able to move anything. So that's a big deal. ASLEF and the TSSA, historically, nowhere, nowhere near as likely to engage in industrial action as, uh, as the RMT, so that would be big. And then, of course, you have teachers talking about it. We have the CWU here. It would be amazing, wouldn't it, Michael, if we had, you know, three, four days of industrial action by CWU workers and all of a sudden critical internet infrastructure stopped working. Because the truth is, the people that, you know, dig the holes with their shovels, the people that weld bits of metal together, the people that make our infrastructure run aren't really reflected in politics, and they're told repeatedly by the media and by the political class, they don't really matter, go to work, don't ask for pay to increase with inflation, how dare you, why ask for that much, you have no right to it, when in fact, it's those very same people who make society run. The trains, the rubbish collection, the engineering infrastructure, 
the electricity, the internet, the gas, the water. Without them, nothing moves. And they've been looked down upon and dismissed by the political class for too long. And I think this is the year where they're really going to stand up because of inflation. You know, we're seeing inflation already of 9.1%, Michael. So if you're getting a pay rise of 3%, that's a real terms pay cut of 6%. And I think once you start going beyond 10% inflation, 10, 15%, this is going to become uncontrollable. And I think at a certain point, the government, if they have their head screwed on, which it's perfectly possible they don't, will try and make concessions to particular parts of the labor market. They will say, for instance, to the TSSA and the management on the trains, we'll give you a pay rise, but not the RMT. Or they'll say to teachers, we'll give you a pay rise, but we won't give it to university lecturers at the UCU. You cannot resist increases in pay, the demands for increases in pay, just to simply keep up the inflation for the entire labor market. You can't do it. It's impossible when inflation is 10 or 15%. There are no historic examples of that being pulled off. So yes, it's going to be a very dramatic year for industrial action. And I think the, the worst thing of all for, for the establishment, Michael, is that this is bleeding through now to popular culture. You know, for so long, the avatar of political radicalism in Britain, the West, has been students, Twitter, you know, young people at university, university occupations, fine. And that's important. You know, we were, we were those people. What we're seeing now is that, yes, of course, those people are radicals, but the face of radicalism also looks like Mick Lynch, also looks like Dave Ward, also looks like Joe Grady at the UCU. And that's a concern because then you have basically anyone in society, old, young, male, female, white, black. They say, well, I've seen somebody just like me in the press or on the TV asking for higher wages, saying that the way that our economy works is rigged in the, in the interests of the elite. That's a big shift. And I think it's something that should, should make the right very worried. We'll see. Isn't it interesting, Michael? Mick Lynch, wall-to-wall -wall coverage for that first week. We've not really seen him on television since. I suspect that's because elite interests in the media, particularly in broadcasts, know that actually the more exposure they give this man, the more stupid they look. It is really interesting. I imagine they are completely terrified of, of, of Mick Lynch. Because, you know, in the days of New Labour, in the 80s, the 90s, a lot of ideological work was done to say, these people who work with their hands, with accents, these people are dinosaurs, they're the past, we don't need to pay any political attention to them. And so, you know, that image that sort of Mick Lynch really represents, there'd been some work done to dismiss someone who speaks like that. Whereas in our political environment, we've actually had that sort of cultural figure venerated for a long time for completely cynical reasons to try and bash BAME people or young people who live in cities and say, you're not the real working class, the real working class wants Brexit and votes Tory. Now you've got someone who fulfills that cultural model, which we've been told we should listen to. And now Mick Lynch is saying something they hate us hearing. And they're like, oh, actually, all of a sudden, don't listen to him. No, 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 no. Everything we've said over the past few months about sort of like anyone who's a, you know, we represent the real working class, we're anti-migrant and we're pro-Brexit, etc. Now someone is coming out and speaking in that working class accent they've been venerating. And they're saying some real hard truths about capitalism and about Tory policy. And suddenly they need to put that back in the box because they've really been taken by surprise here. They were not expecting Mick Lynch to be as articulate, as persuasive as he has been. Um, and as we're going to see in the next section, it's had some real impact um, when it comes to public perceptions. As you may know, we're currently running a fundraiser. We're looking to increase our base of supporters to 10,000. One of the reasons we want to do that is in order to expand our output and in particular, our original reporting. And to that end, I'm delighted to announce that this week we've hired someone who will help us do just that. Polly Smythe is our new Labour movement correspondent. So this wave of strikes, we will have someone dedicated to covering that, to doing original reporting on the industrial action, which is, you know, shaping the political weather in this country right now because it's not the Labour Party doing it, it's not the Conservative Party doing it, it is the trade unions. Trade union leaders like Mick Lynch on the television and you know, the whole Labour movement going out on picket lines and saying, no, we won't accept cut wages. We're not going to say, oh yeah, this is fine. We'll just sit down and nod our heads while you say you've got to accept a real-term 5% pay cut. Why, why would we do that? In any case, if you want to help support us expand further, then do please head to navarromedia.com slash support and consider donating whatever you can. That link is, of course, in the description. The public have come round to the idea of industrial action. And perhaps thanks to the effective argumentation of RMT leader Mick Lynch, a plurality now support last week's rail strike. 
before the strike started. 42% of the public opposed the strike, compared to 41% who were in favour. By the end of the strikes, that had flipped. 45% now supported the strikes, with only 37% against. Not everyone has softened to the cause of organised labour, though. This was Tony Blair speaking to Newsnight. I wondered what your position is on strikes. Uh, Obviously, Keir Starmer says, don't go on the RMT picket line. There's big public support, though, for the RMT. Yeah, but here's here's the thing that that Labour, in my view, should say about this. You can have every sympathy for people who, as a result of the situation the economy's in, the cost of living crisis, high inflation, that they're angry about the situation, anxious about their terms and conditions of employment, And that's why you can understand why these movements for strike action take place. But the truth is, if Labour wants to form a government, it's got to be very clear, the country at the moment can't afford a whole wave of public sector strikes. So the 3% government guideline is something you'd back? Well, Labour's going to have to decide what its position is on that, but it's got to decide it in a way that makes the public feel, whatever their sympathy are for people who are on strike, makes the public think Labour can be trusted with government. But just to be clear, and to finish, you believe below inflation pay settlements are necessary well, look, in this in, moment? In the, in the end, what I, you, you, each pay settlement is a matter of negotiation. In the public sector? In the public sector. But I think for Labour to support a wave of public sector strikes is going to be very damaging for Labour. So I... And I know it'll come under huge pressure, but one of the things you've got to to do when you're in opposition and you really, you know, you're really aiming for government is you've got to put yourself in a position that you would be if you became the government. That was multimillionaire Tony Blair telling everyone else they should accept a pay cut. Um, Aaron, how would you respond to Tony Blair there? He's saying two separate things. One is, I think the implicit argument is that there shouldn't be uh, pay increases for the public sector that keeps up with inflation. Then he's making a separate point, which is, you know, Labour shouldn't publicly argue for that. I, I think he's wrong on both counts. I most certainly think he's wrong on the first count. And I find it extraordinary, Michael, that somebody who has a personal property portfolio of £50 million, along with his wife and his, uh, his son, his wife, Cherie, has not one, but two property management companies. They are buy-to-let landlords across Greater Manchester, single-bed units, it should be said. People locked into the rental sector, Michael. We know that people between their mid-30s, mid-40s are three times more likely to rent than 20 years ago, precisely because of the economic model championed by Mr. Blair. And his, his wife and his son are getting extraordinarily rich off it. This is a man who owns not one, but two 10 million pound properties. And he's saying that we can't afford to give, uh, we can't afford to give workers pay increases that keep up with inflation. So they have to get poorer in real terms. Here's a question that Mark Urban, who I don't really rate as a journalist at Newsnight, I mean, BBC Newsnight now with, with uh, Lewis Goodall going is just crap. Utterly predictable, low information, banality. But here's a question I would have asked Tony Blair if I was Mark Urban. How much are you increasing rent by in the properties that your wife and son own in Greater Manchester? How much is rent going up by? Is it more than inflation? Is it less? How much less? Or how much more? I'd be intrigued to know the answer, Michael. But those are the kind of tough questions we don't see in the media. We have Tony Blair giving predictable answers to predictable questions, and nobody is learning anything new. And that's precisely because things like BBC Newsnight aren't the media. They're not there to inform you. This is effectively a propaganda outlet. This is somebody saying exactly what they want to tell you in a broadcast, public relations way in order to bolster a particular faction of the Labour Party. He's outriding for Keir Starmer. What does the audience learn from this, really, Michael, when we're looking at the highest inflation now for at least 40 years? It's already the highest it's been for 40 years. I, I, would, I would submit we're, we're not learning very much. And so to conclude, this is somebody whose son is worth in excess of 100 million. This is someone whose wife owns two property companies. This is somebody who owns, owns two properties themselves worth more than 10 million. Peter Mandelson also owns a 10 million pound property, by the way. And yet they're somehow seen as all authoritative, authentic, informative voices around pay disputes and people not getting poorer. Nobody takes this seriously except Tony Blair and except the likes of the BBC. And increasingly, it's incongruent with the public conversation. And look, let's see if they interview Mick Lynch and if they get better ratings. I think we both know the answer to that. I'd like to see a Tony Blair-Mick Lynch 
debate, actually. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that would have been the question to ask him, right? Because we know in, in London, at least, rents are going up 15% on average this year. In, in fact, that was exactly the rent increase I was given this year, 15%. And I haven't seen a single person on television ask a landlord whether they are going to take a cut to the income they get for essentially doing nothing or are they going to just go with the market and charge whatever they can? Because it looks to me like they're all charging whatever they can. They're going with the market and they're getting a fat payout, right? We're told we have to accept pay cuts. Landlords, they're increasing their rents by above inflation and no one's complaining about them at all. And obviously that pushes inflation. The reason people need a pay rise is because their costs have increased. So why don't we talk about those costs increasing? Because there's choices involved there as well. You know, rent is not a law of nature. That's a decision made by landlords because they want to protect their income or even increase their income whenever they feel they can get away with it. Now, workers, we're supposed to sort of think about the greater good. Oh, no, we should accept lower wages because if we all ask for higher wages, then that would maybe increase inflation. The inflation is not our fault, right? The inflation is the fault of a war in Ukraine, supply chain issues, and then people like landlords and profiteers making the most of it, rubbing their hands together and getting richer than ever. And then you've got Tony Blair on television saying, oh, a serious party of government has to tell ordinary people they have to accept a pay cut. Now, of course, Tony Blair has been basically getting exactly what he wants when it comes to the Labour Party's stance. You may have already seen this clip from David Lammy. What about GMB and Unite uh, workers who are the unions representing the BA check-in staff, the ones who say they're going to go on strike, who balloted for strike this summer, who could ruin a lot of people's summer holidays? They're balloting for strike because of a 10% pay cut that was imposed on them during the pandemic. They want it reversed. Do you support them? Will you stand with them? Well, look, all of us are feeling the pinch with inflation. Many of us uh, might want a rise of 10%. Uh, in truth, most people understand it's unlikely that you're going to get that. That was David Lammy saying everyone in Britain should expect and accept a real terms pay cut. That's just reality. And so for that reason, he didn't back the British Airways strike. It was pretty gross and it also ended up being pretty embarrassing. That's because Lammy went on to admit later that he had no idea what he was talking about in response to a constituent who complained about his opposition to the BA strikes. Lammy wrote this, When Sophie Rayworth said that workers wanted to reverse a previous pay cut of 10%, I mistakenly understood it to mean that they were seeking an above-inflation pay rise. I was not across the details of the case. It is right that those of us in public life admit when they have made a mistake. With this in mind, I apologise to all BA workers. Now, a couple of things to say about this. First of all, the arrogance, right, You're a frontbencher on the Labour Party. The arrogance of going on television and saying, I disagree with the British Airways strike. You know, a democratic vote, a whole workforce of people say, I disagree with their strike. When you've admitted later to knowing nothing about it, you've admitted to making a mistake. Maybe you should just apologise for the fact that you spoke about something you didn't understand. You could say there, I don't actually expect, I mean, we might talk about this in a moment, Aaron, but I don't actually expect Labour Party frontbenchers to say, we support all and every strike. You know, that historically has never actually been the role of Labour frontbenchers. But you can at least research something before you cast aspersions about a movement by people. The other thing to say here is David Lammy saying, oh, sorry, I opposed it because I thought they were fighting a real terms pay cut. In fact, they're only fighting a nominal pay cut. You know, th- their nominal pay was cut by 10%. They just want to bring that back to the level it was. So we're saying, oh, no, as long as they're still accepting a pay cut, I can support their, a, a real terms pay cut. Sorry, I can support their strike. Like, is this now the conditions for supporting a strike? If you are not willing to accept a real terms pay cut, then we are not going to support your struggle. It's a pretty um, interesting bar to set for any labor movement, isn't it? We'll only support you if you're willing to get poorer. We're all feeling the pinch. Well, are you, David Lammy? Because in the last three years, you've earned £141,000 in speaking fees from the likes of Deloitte and Google and Facebook. That doesn't sound like feeling the pinch to me. Although maybe we live in such stratospherically different worlds that 141000 in extra parliamentary income just from speaking, not his books. Well, we're all feeling the pinch. I don't think so. I think there are RMT members out there or BA workers who are worried about putting on the heating next winter. Rightly so, by the way, because it's only going in one direction. And you're trying to say you're in the same, same boat as them? Have a little bit of humility and don't take us for idiots. That's the first thing. There are some very talented, very high values politicians out there who aren't good money. In, in politics, people do earn good money. And I don't resent the fact, by the way, if, if, if somebody earns money doing extra 
the speaking events or whatever, good for them. But then don't do that on the one hand and then pontificate about workers trying to see their wages keep up with inflation. My goodness. When did this become normal? When did this become acceptable? Again, though, Michael, Mick Lynch exposed this. The media in this country is so pathetic and incapable of basic preparation and doing their job, they couldn't put that question to him. A decent prepared journalist, you, you would do this, Michael. I think you and I would do this. If you were interviewing David Lamy and he said that, you would definitely have to hand, well, you earned £141,000 in three years in speaking fees. Are you really feeling the pinch, Mr. Lamy? Andrew Neil probably would have asked that in his defense. When did you see that at the BBC last time? They don't do it. They don't do their jobs. They just sort of turn up, go through the motions, oh, bash the left. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Well, okay. Look, these are people's lives we're talking about. We're seeing people's wages fall by 10, 15% in one year. That's a lot of money. So this, okay, pedestrian, I earn £150,000 a year. I don't really have to do a proper job here. No, you do have to do a job. You're a public service broadcaster. Your job is to work in the public interest. So pull your finger out of your ass. Well, that's the first point, Michael, about Lamy and his extra, extracurricular activities. Uh, and then, like you say, he's not across the detail. Well, I thought this was Mr. Competent. So either you lie or you're incompetent. Which one is it? And by the way, neither is a particularly good answer for a politician. I'm going to be charitable and say that it's not competent. Well, I wasn't across the detail. They gave you the details in the question, David. I mean, what more is there to say? I mean, I, I haven't seen a party get themselves in more of a mess than the Labour Party have when it comes to the cost of living crisis and the strikes. I can't think of a worse situation than this, than a party completely fucking up a political opportunity. And I say this not because, you know, if I was leading the Labour Party, I would support the RMT strikes. But I, I don't think, as I've said, I don't think the Labour Party does have to support every strike. They haven't historically. There has always been sort of a bit of a division of labour between the trade unions and the Labour Party. But what the Labour Party has actively done has, is say to the whole public, right, you should accept to pay cut. And we've had cabinet members so there was the, the chief secretary to the treasury went on TV a couple of weeks ago and said explicitly, everyone in this country, every worker should accept a pay rise below inflation. You've got a government minister in the treasury saying you're all going to get poorer. Now, if I'm the Labour Party in that situation, if I don't care about anything, if all I want to do is get elected and I have no politics whatsoever, that is a political opportunity. Because you tell the whole country, look, this party in government, they want all of you, every single one of you to get poorer. And that's not acceptable. We don't think you should get poorer, right? And, and we'll, we'll come up with some answers so that you don't have to accept that. But instead, what we've got, is we've got front bench politicians going on television, saying we're all feeling a pinch, even though they're stinking rich, as Aaron's just described there, and saying, oh, no, of course, of course, everyone is going to have to get poorer. Of course, of course, you're not closing the political space. Absolutely. And basically saying, don't expect anything better than to get poorer. Now, it's just remarkable, right? It is so different from what Keir Starmer was saying in his leadership pitch. So different from what Boris Johnson was saying just a year ago. They're all talking about how Britain needs a pay rise. Now, all of a sudden, everyone needs to accept a pay cut. And there isn't a single voice on either front bench who's willing to contest that, which I suppose is why Mick Lynch makes so many waves when he goes on television, because he's the only person well, I say brave, but it should be pretty goddamn obvious. The only person who's going on television and saying, actually, don't accept getting poorer. Since when were we supposed to accept getting poorer? Aaron, your final thoughts on, you know, Labour trying to lower the expectations of the British public. Well, you touched upon it a moment ago, Michael. When your rent goes up by 15%, the political class, the so-called opposition, Labour and the Liberal Democrats, so-called opposition, we have three pro-austerity parties again. They'll say, well, that's the market. What can you do? But if the people subject to those rent increases want a 15% increase in their wages, please don't do that. You'll drive inflation. How else are they meant to cover the increase in rent unless they're getting poorer? Or like we say with the, with the RMT dispute, private rail operators increase the price of the tickets every year by inflation. But if the RMT drivers, as left drivers rather, and RMT staff, by the way, RMT staff average £31,000 a year salary, not big money. The, literally, the average wage for the UK is £31,000. If they want their pay to increase by inflation, don't be so irresponsible. How could you? You're increasing tickets by inflation. But this, of course, is called bad economics. And it returns to the, that fundamental question. Bad economics for who? Bad economics for who? It's, 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 bad, it's called bad economics by people who say, we're all feeling the pinch while they're earning 141,000 speaking at dinner parties and cocktail parties for, for, for Google and Facebook. It's bad economics for them because the reason why they're paid so much to speak at these events is precisely because their political work is about guaranteeing high profits, even if that comes at the cost of low wages. It's really not that difficult to put together. Our media completely fails to do it, Michael. 
The thing that's really shot me the most, I think, with this inflation crisis is the complete incapacity of the media to do their job, even, even to come to work and do a six out of 10. It's extraordinary. They only really cover what the Labour Party is saying and what the Tory Party are saying. So if the Labour Party aren't saying it, and if the Tory Party aren't saying it, no one's going to say it. You know, because they just see their job as sort of commentating on this game that's going on over there. But they're not very good at critiquing something which both parties are getting fundamentally wrong. Let's move on to our next story. At this week's NATO summit, it was confirmed that both Sweden and Finland would be able to join NATO. This is how Boris Johnson welcomed the news. It's been an incredible day for NATO in the sense that uh, Finland and Sweden have got the go-ahead to join. The significance of this really can't be overstated. Finland and Sweden have been decades and decades the most resistant uh, to military alignment, countries that have treasured their neutrality. Uh, the fact that they have decided to join NATO says two very important things. One, it shows how concerned they are about the aggression of Vladimir Putin, how dangerous they feel he is. But what it also shows is that NATO is fundamentally a defensive alliance. These are peaceful countries. They don't believe in aggressive uh, behavior. And, you know, that's it's very, very important. That helps us to explode some of the myths around NATO. So a very important day in, in the sense that we're seeing expansion of uh, the alliance, which is exactly the opposite of what Putin wanted. He wanted less NATO. He's getting more. The people of Afghanistan and Libya might not agree that NATO is a purely defensive alliance. But nonetheless, Boris Johnson is correct that this wave of expansion represents an own goal for Vladimir Putin. It is that relationship between the West and Russia that has dominated reactions to the prospect of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Less discussed, though, is a group caught between the crossfire. That's the Kurds may have been affected because Finland and even more so Sweden have been relatively supportive of the struggle for Kurdish human rights in the face of repression by Turkey. In 2019, both Finland and Sweden imposed an arms embargo on Turkey. That was after its attack on Kurdish forces fighting ISIS in western Syria. And both Sweden and Finland have provided refuge to Kurdish dissidents. This has never been to Turkey's liking, but it was Sweden and Finland's attempt to join NATO that finally gave Turkey some leverage. That's because as an existing NATO member, they get to veto anyone joining. Erdogan say that Sweden and Finland needn't bother trying to join NATO, but as many expected, it's turned out that that was a power play. And at this week's summit, Erdogan appears to have won significant concessions in return for removing his bloc. The free country signed a 10-point memorandum on Tuesday. These were the key points. As prospective NATO allies, Finland and Sweden extend their full support to Turkey against threats to its national security. To that effect, Finland and Sweden will not provide support to the YPG or PYD and the organization described as FETO in Turkey. The memorandum also said this. Turkey, Finland and Sweden confirm that there are now no national arms embargoes in place between them. And most controversially, Finland and Sweden will address Turkey's pending deportation or extradition requests of terror suspects expeditiously and thoroughly taking into account information, evidence and intelligence provided by Turkey and establish necessary bilateral legal frameworks to facilitate extradition and security cooperation with Turkey in accordance with the European Convention on Extradition. Sweden and Finland have pointed to that mention of the European Conventions on Extradition as a source of reassurance for Kurdish dissidents, but not everyone is convinced. Amina Kakabava is a Swedish MP of Kurdish descent. In response to the signing of that memorandum, she said, This is a black day in Swedish political history. We are negotiating with a regime which does not respect freedom of expression or the rights of minority groups. Aaron, does this deal between Erdogan and the Swedes and the Finns put the dark side of NATO on show? It does. But Michael, the first thing I want to say is, Turkiye, why... It's an English-speaking document. Why call it Turkey? And this is a very strange thing I've noticed in recent years. This X is, oh, you have to use the X and Please don't use the anglicized word. Turkey. So now, from now on, do we now need to call Iran Jumhariya Islamiya Iran? Do I have to learn 100 languages if I want to talk about a country 5,000 miles away? This is ridiculous. This is a Turkey. It's Turkey. It's been Turkey my entire life. We're not going to stop saying it. Anyway, the Turks are getting what they want. I think the figure I saw earlier on today last night is they want 73 terrorists, quote-unquote, they're calling them that, extradited. 
as from what I can see, and maybe that is happening uh, behind closed doors, from what I can see, there's no submission of any evidence as to the allegations uh, for those 73 persons. So they want 73 people presently in Sweden. We don't know how many maybe Swedish nationals or dual nationals or have a permanent right to remain or settle in Sweden. They want 73 of them extradited to Turkey. And these aren't people who've been found guilty in a court, et cetera, et cetera. These are 73 people who've in no way been prosecuted, who Turkey's demanding return there. And that seems to be the condition for Swedish membership of NATO. Sweden is a country, Michael. It's, it, it is a country which is very rare in the global south. You know, as somebody, my, my father's from Iran, across the global south, the Nordics are viewed as quite different, really, to the Western Europeans and, and North America. They're viewed as fair. When they talk about human rights, which of course the whole global north does, they actually are kind of viewed as meaning it. Now, the Swedes in particular, the Nor you know, the Norwegians, uh, they're quite a close, a close scrape with fascism, so they don't kind of count. But Sweden in particular has been militarily neutral for 200 years. Obviously, it had a, a tremendous, tremendous record with regards to uh, the ANC and the struggle against apartheid and Yakuin Palme and so on. And this record of actually caring about human rights, and not just merely talking about it, has been very well earned over 200 years. I mean, they've been neutral for 200 years as a country. And I find it remarkable how all that good work over 200 years can be dispensed with and discarded by a single administration. And it will be discarded if these 73 people are extradited. They haven't been. Sweden hasn't responded in kind yet to these demands from Erdogan. But the the claim is that that is the, that is the red line for Turkey, Turkiye that unless those 73 people are extradited back to Turkey, then there will be no Swedish membership of NATO. And when we've had people critical of NATO for a number of reasons, yes, it's been a belligerent, aggressive catalyzer of wars abroad, most recently in Libya, a failure of a war which made people less safe. There are open-air slave markets in Libya today because of that conflict. Then, you know, people are making those criticisms because they know what they're talking about. And this is one of them. You know, the idea that NATO members are all wonderful democracies. I mean, is Erdogan's Turkey really a, you know, exemplary of democracy? And then finally, we've been fighting ISIS until 10 minutes ago. ISIS was, of course, enemy number one for the West. And the people that were doing the hard yards in Syria and Kurdistan, northern Syria, were the YPG, the PYD, who are Kurds. And of course, they have close relations to the PKK, the Workers' Party of Kurdistan in Turkey. And those are the people doing the hard yards against ISIS. They took Raqqa. They helped retake Raqqa a few years ago in Syria. They're working alongside us. But actually now they're the bad guys. And actually anybody supporting them will be extradited from Sweden to Turkey. Oh, and by the way, at the same time, in the, in the retaking of Mosul, the United States was working alongside Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So when people say, wow, your foreign policy is really all over the place in those countries, it doesn't make any sense. They're absolutely right. One minute, public enemy number one is ISIS. Next minute, the people fighting ISIS and other people were extraditing. One minute, Iran is fighting alongside the US and Iraq to stop ISIS. The next minute, well, Iran has to be subject to the most harsh economic sanctions in the history of humanity. Again, the media, Michael, the media, they don't in any way inform the public about this stuff. People have a vague understanding that we're quite duplicitous and our leaders make it up as they go along and every 10 to 15 years, there's a new screw up and then the next admin says that was a screw up, nothing to do with us, Gov. And it keeps on happening, keeps on happening because there's no real accountability or transparency through the media or the political process about foreign policy. And if you're critical about foreign policy decisions, you've seen what happens, Michael. If you, if you say, well, maybe that's not the right thing to do. And by the way, forget a free society, in a successful society, you need to strongman your arguments. It helps you to have people criticizing your ideas because it makes your very ideas stronger by nature of having to defend them. But we live in such a closed political culture when it comes to foreign policy in this country, Michael. If you say, well, maybe that's a bad idea. How dare you? How dare you think expansion of NATO might be a bad idea? How dare you? According to Paul Mason, that means that you should automatically be disqualified as a member of the Labour Party. I do think this is a very stark example of what you lose when you drop a policy of neutrality, because the whole point of, you know, Sweden having that neutral policy, especially in the second half of the 20th century, was that you do get to take sort of moral stances, which are not necessarily in line with any one block. That was, the, you know, that was, that was the whole point of it. You're not aligned, and that means you can make your own moral judgments about things. And when it comes to the Kurdish movement for liberation, it seems as if, you know, the Swedes and the Finns have been able to make their own moral judgment about this. You know, they've got a lot of Kurds in those countries, Kurdish members of parliament. 
And so they've been able to take a step back and say, well, actually, we don't think it's right that the Turks are bombing the people who fought ISIS, so therefore we're going to stop selling them arms. Now, they've joined NATO and they lose all of that agency. You can no longer make any kind of moral judgment because you're now part of a bloc, which isn't contrary to what Paul Mason or what Joe Biden or what Erdogan will tell you, glued together by shared values. It's glued together by shared interests that these group of countries want to stay hegemonic vis-a-vis any other bloc in the world, right? So now Sweden and Finland have to subsume, subject their foreign policy, not to their own judgments, but to these countries which they are now in alliance to. And it looks as if the Kurds are going to be the first victims. It's difficult to know who will be next. And we had another stark example of how the politics of alliances overrides human rights this week. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has struggled to explain why Britain is wholly opposed to human rights abuses when they're committed by Russia or China, but is happy to turn a blind eye when they're committed by our allies in the Middle East. This is Labour MP Chris Bryant grilling Truss in a hearing of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. You were talking about authoritarian regimes earlier, and you've said that the UK should be a robust counterweight to authoritarian regimes and that we are ending our dependency on authoritarian regimes for energy. How would you describe the Gulf states? I would describe the uh, Gulf states as partners of the United Kingdom. We're currently negotiating a trade deal with the GCC. Now, is every country that we work with Uh, exactly in line with United Kingdom policy on everything. No, they're not. But they are important allies of the United Kingdom. Hang on. Mohammed bin Salman, um, responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, no? Yeah? What I would say is that Saudi Arabia is an important partner of the United Kingdom. 81 executions all on one day in Saudi Arabia. And you, you don't think that that's an authoritarian regime? What I'm focused on is making sure that we are dealing with the major threats to the world. The number one threat we're dealing with at the moment is the threat from Russia. In order to do that, we need to make sure that we have alternative energy sources. And one of the key sources of energy is the Gulf region. We're not dealing in a perfect world. We're dealing in a world where we need to make difficult difficult decisions. And I think it is right that we build that closer trading relationship with the Gulf states. How would you describe the Gulf states? I would describe them as partners of the United Kingdom. End of story. Partners of the United Kingdom, we don't have to ask any more questions. So it's obvious when it comes to China and Russia, our foreign policy is motivated by opposition to authoritarianism. We hate them because they don't share our values. But when it comes to Saudi Arabia, all of a sudden our foreign policy is motivated not by our values, but by our interests. So are we really supposed to believe that the UK government has this completely incoherent approach to the world? So our opposition to China and Russia, that's purely moral, that's purely ethical. But when it comes to the Gulf, magically, suddenly it's about interests. Perhaps the reason we're opposed to Russia and China also could be about interests and not about the moral commitments of our government. Liz Truss's answers got even more embarrassing. In the Gulf um, trade document that you just published, you say the government will continue to hold those who violate human rights to account. How are you doing that in the Gulf states at the moment? Well, these issues are raised regularly with the relevant ministers and leaders who we meet in the Gulf states. You and have what personally... Our aim I have personally, yes. Well, your spokesman said that you hadn't. So what was, what's the last human rights issue that you raised with a Gulf state leader? I'd, I'd have to come back to the committee on the precise timing of that. But well, I anything, have just tell us it. anything that you said well, on I human rights. Well, I certainly have within... raised it when I was in... Go on, tell us I'm one I'm just now. trying to remember my most recent visit, but I can assure you I have raised it, and I will write to you with the details. You can't remember a single human rights issue that you've raised with a Gulf state leader? Oh, I've raised particular issues when I've been in the Gulf about human rights issues. I'm not going to go into all the details of private conversations, which I will come back to you on in due course. She can't name a single human rights abuse that she's raised with Saudi Arabia. 
Could it be any more obvious that she doesn't care? It's also completely inconsistent what she said. I'm not going to share with you details of private conversations. And then she says, oh, I'll have to email you details of those private conversations. Either they're private or they're not, right? So you've tied yourself in knots. And the obvious conclusion is you have never raised a human rights issue with Saudi Arabia, right? I've raised all sorts of human rights issues. Name one. She can't name one. You know, I, I bet you could, you know, ask most people in the street, name a Saudi Arabian human rights abuse. Most people can talk about Jamal Khashoggi. You know, they can talk about hanging people. Liz Truss, suddenly, cat's got a tongue. Aaron, I want your take on this. I mean, that exchange, do you think, I do think Chris Bryant did a good job there. And I, I do really think that that showed in a conversation the amoral nature, the absolutely amoral nature of, of British foreign policy. Yeah. Also, the way she sort of purses her lips upwards when she's being challenged, almost rising like a little souffle gently. Very strange. Um, very strange lady and a very strange set of responses. Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi, it should be mentioned, by the way, Michael, was a dual national. He was a US national as well. This is what I find really remarkable. It's a US national, a journalist at the Washington Post. We're not talking about, you know, the landlord at the dog and duck. We're talking about a really serious person, one of the most serious public intellectuals in the Arab world, like I say, a dual national, who's chopped up in an embassy. And that's seemingly not, not a major issue. And I think one of the reasons why people like Trump, or even Farage, is he says, yep, we're going to work with the Saudis. We have a completely amoral foreign policy. He even once said that, you know, we're no angels either. And I think people go, you know what, at least this guy's honest. Whereas you have the default amongst the British political establishment and the Democrats in the United States say, we are the avatars of democracy with defenders of human rights and freedoms around the world. But we're working with uh, an autocratic theocracy, which, you know, murders 70 people a day. Yeah. Sorry about that. But these two things aren't incongruent. So I think in a way, the, the electorate probably is uh, aware of realpolitik. I think the electorate can probably swallow the argument, well, there's an energy crisis. Sorry, we do have to work with countries that we don't otherwise want to work with to guarantee energy security. Although, of course, that doesn't apply to Venezuela or, or Iran, notice. Just Saudi Arabia. Doesn't, doesn't work with Tehran. I think people would swallow that, but I think it's the dressing up as the, the moral and ethical superiority, which just comes so easily, so easily to the British ruling class, because that's been their post-imperial default. You, of course, oversaw this empire, which was 25% of the planet's surface area, 20% of its population, well, you, you have to pretend somehow that you're the good guys and you're defending liberty. How can you be defending liberty when a quarter of the planet's surface area is your empire? We were defending democracy. Well, the Indian army in the Second World War, they didn't have much choice when they were fighting on the side of the British Empire. Of course, thank God they were, because it defeated the Wehrmacht and the Third Reich. That wasn't democracy. It wasn't freedom. So this lie is, is, is fundamental, Michael, actually, to the, to the political psyche of our establishment, because otherwise, how do you make sense of Britain's past? Final story. Douglas Murray is an associate editor at The Spectator and regularly appears on high-profile shows such as Question Time. Murray has long been a loud voice opposing immigration to Britain, especially by Muslims. And in a recent interview with Dave Rubin, his far-right views were taken to their logical, hateful conclusion. Let's take a look. Well, here's what I think. I think we've been being polite. And I'm done with it. Totally done with it. Um... All of what I describe in this book is only going on because of, uh, we happen to live in highly tolerant societies. Uh, so I give, I give a set of what it would look like if we stopped being tolerant. Um, I mean, here are a couple of standoffs I would do. Uh, I feel this very strongly. If, if you uh, don't respect my ancestors, I've seen no reason to respect yours. You know, if you don't show any respect for my history, I don't see why I should pretend to respect yours. Uh, if you don't respect my culture, I don't need to respect yours. If you don't respect me, I see no reason to respect you. Um, now, what does this look like, this lack of politeness? Well, it would look like telling some truths that our ear has been too polite not to uh, say, or to, in recent years at any rate. In, in the end of his series on civilization, Lord Clark memorably said that, um, that, uh, that, that courtesy was one of the things that defined the West. 
It's a very interesting thing to fall on at the end of his thing. But courtesy, courtesy is a hugely important thing in Western society. But it's not endless. So here would be an, a non-courteous thing to say. Um, we t we've been told about other ways of knowing, um, other ways of doing maths, non-race, anti-racist science, and all this sort of thing. Yet we do not go to any Aboriginal communities for vaccines. We go to no first peoples for cancer treatment. We go to them for no mathematical, scientific, or artistic discoveries. We do not go to them to rediscover other languages and other cultures. Partly, largely, because such communities seem to have had not much interest in other cultures. Unlike the Western mind, they seem not to have taken a great interest. Um, so, uh, the not courteous thing would be us saying, we've been courteous for an awfully long time and we're going to stop because it seems not to be doing us much good. We've been too courteous as the West to Aboriginals and First Nation people. We literally subjected them to genocide, right? Genocide. And now there's a few university courses in American universities, which means that Douglas Murray now suddenly thinks we're the victims. Aaron, there's a lot to say about that clip I want to throw to you. What has he got wrong there? Well, he's got everything wrong, Michael. And the thing is, he says so much nonsense with such confidence. You know, the idea that, oh, there are other ways of doing mathematics. Of course, there are other ways of doing mathematics. There are ways of doing mathematics we don't yet understand or comprehend. That's how scientific knowledge works. It's contingent. It's contingent until the next discovery, the next innovation. That's, that's literally how knowledge works. It's contingent by virtue of the scientific method. So he doesn't have the slightest clue what he's talking about. Oh, the West, it's, it's dependent on politeness and courtesy. Really? Japanese culture isn't courteous? Or Persian culture? There's a word in Farsi, taruf, being, you know, excessively courteous. He hasn't got the slightest idea what he's talking about. He plays the faux anthropologist, but then doesn't actually understand this very same concept exists in most cultures. The idea it only permeates the West is, is utterly ridiculous. And I think it's problematic for all of us that he's doing this in the United States because there's nothing more certain than a thick Englishman speaking with a posh accent, doing very well and finding a very receptive audience the other side of the Atlantic. It's a great shame for the rest of us. And the way that he talks about this, you know, it's like he's talking about a toxic ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend. This is just quite frankly ridiculous. Our numbers are Arabic. Mine astronomy had the calendar down better than the Julian calendar, which we use until the 16th century. Indian and Arabic mathematics are just as core to mathematics today as anything done by a European. What the hell is this man talking about? And the confidence to speak such utter garbage as well. You know, his, his ignorance is only matched by his phony assuredness. And that comes from a, that comes from a place actually, I think, often of, of actually not being certain of actually lacking confidence. You know, the scientific method is being open to new perspectives and new ideas. This man is the opposite of the scientific method. The weirdest thing about it as well is because, you know, you could take it as making an argument about sort of civilization and sort of obviously, you know, humans, we used to be hunter-gatherers, we got civilization. I'm not completely against this idea that there was some sort of progress between those two stages. But he's saying civilization is Western. Anything else, anyone else is basically a hunter-gatherer. Is completely bizarre. What about China? <laughs> what about India? As you say, what about Japan? Well, you know, th there are so many civilizations from which we have gained so much, as you say, mathematically, scientifically, in terms of literature. And he thinks everyone is either European or, or a hunter-gatherer. Like, it, it's so, so bizarre. And he is there, as you say, with that sort of authoritative posh accent, saying, I'm done with pretending. Like, how do you respond to it? Aaron, we need to wrap up. I want your, your very final thoughts on Douglas Murray. Well, you know, two things. Firstly, people would say, well, the Industrial Revolution, all these things that we take for granted, that's all the result of white people, the West. Okay, well, let's go further back. Farming, agriculture, cities, numbers, crops, using animals to raise agricultural productivity. That's from West Asia 12,000 years ago. Do we need to thank them as well? These are human accomplishments. So yes, very strange and, and, and silly way of, of carrying on. And I would, I would implore people, like you say, Michael, to, to look at these as human 
accomplishments. You know, China and India have been the world's two largest economies for 18 of the last 20 centuries. That's clearly a reality we're returning to. And I think what Douglas Murray represents is hostility to that amidst also the realization of its inevitability. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in this evening. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.